Welcome to the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. Um, on the other side is Paul Hoynes. I'm Jamie Turner filling in for Joe Noga who's off today. And it is snowing outside, so we got to talk baseball. Uh, <laughs> something has to keep us warm, Paul. That's right. <laughs> and what more could you have that might keep a, an Indians fan warm in a season of potential discontent? Then the idea that uh, we've got a the Hall of Fame ballots going out, and uh, one of the guys who has got to be thinking this could be an interesting start of the new year would be Omar Vizquel. Yeah, definitely, Jamie. Uh, you know, the Indians' uh, former Gold Glove shortstop um, is on the ballot for the fourth consecutive year. You know, each year we've seen his, uh, you know, percentage of the votes jump from 37 to 42 and to 52.6 percent last year um so you need 75 percent to get in and i think he's he's on the, on a re- really a really good track uh jamie you know uh and i think um i don't know if he'll get in this year but i feel really really positive that uh within you know he's got six more years on the ballot and i definitely think he should be in by before that. Are you a little surprised that it's turned out this way? Because I remember when he first went on the ballot, uh, there were a number of people, uh, particularly those with uh, sabermetric uh, backgrounds, saying, well, okay, he had a lot of gold gloves, but he isn't an Ozzie Smith. And, and I'm thinking, is that the bar you've got to jump over to be a Hall of Famer, is to be Ozzie Smith or better? Uh, I, I I wasn't sure, and I thought, well, maybe it is going to be tough for him. But like you said, he, there, there's no question he's gaining momentum. Yeah, when you compare him to, uh, you know, a, a guy that's near and dear to your heart, Alan Trammell. Trammell, I don't think, ever got more than uh, 40% of the vote. You know, he had right. to, he was on there for 15 years and had to get, uh, went to the hall by the Veterans Committee, an offshoot of the Veterans Committee. So, you know. In comparison, you know, Trammell, I think, was a much better hitter than than Omar. But, uh, you know, this is a you know, Omar has has made a big jump. You know, he got got off to a great start uh, with the with, you know, the 37 percent in his first year balloting. And I think, you know, Jamie, I think this is an, a player that passes the eye test for a lot of uh, the members of the BBWA who vote. They saw him. They don't necessarily buy into um, the analytics people who say, well, you know, this is a guy that played for 24 years. You know, a lot of his stats are counting stats, you know, but if the closer you look at this guy, I mean, yeah, he played for 24 years. And there's a reason he played for 24 years is because teams wanted him. He he was still he he held his talent that long. It's a guy with 2,800 hits, um, you know has played the most games ever at shortstop and has the highest fielding percentage of any player that's played shortstop. Uh, he's played on championship teams and he had a chance uh, at, you know, after he left Cleveland to go to the giants and play for two, you know, good giants teams there and win gold gloves each year. The writers in both leagues got to see this guy, got to see him, you know, at his peak and I really think that's kind of uh, that's really assisted at Omar. 
I was struck by, uh, I mean, I grew up, as you did, I'm sure, uh, since we're more or less in the same ballpark and age, uh, you know, I, I really got into the Bill James abstract. I really paid attention to every year reading and kind of learning what I thought was, you know, inside information that most people didn't have. And if you look at uh, Omar's page on baseballreference.com and you scan all the way to the bottom of the page where they do their Hall of Fame statistics. I'm struck by a couple of things. One, obviously, like you said, Omar is not a Hall of Fame hitter. Uh, he did get over 2,000 hits and had you know, a, a, a very good career uh, in total numbers, but he, he wasn't that kind of player. Uh, among uh, and in the comparisons that Baseball Reference does, all sabermetric uh, stuff, uh, they say that his uh, batting statistic uh, was uh, is a 25 when Hall of Famers would have 144 uh, gray ink points, which is excellence in, in, uh, in each year. Uh, and in his, their Hall of Fame standards, he still grades a little worse than the average Famer, uh, 42 to 50. But in Hall of Fame monitor, and I don't know the, quite all the difference, that the likely Hall of Famer being having all of the statistics, fielding, hitting, all put together with the average Hall of Famer averaging 100 points, Omar has 120. Now, I'm not sure how you do that when your ink are, are not comparable to most Hall of Famers. But something works, and it has to be that eye test that you're talking about. It has to be the duration of how he was a great shortstop, not just in his prime, but well past what you would have considered a, a shortstop's prime. I mean, the, the entirety of his 30s, he was a, a great defensive shortstop. Yeah, Jamie, and, you know, I've talked to, uh, talked to John McDonald, the Indians infield instructor, a number of times. And, um, you know, he was a teammate of Omar. I mean, he stayed, he was in the minors because <laughs> Omar and Robbie, Robbie Alomar were in the, playing in the middle of the infield and he couldn't beat those two guys out. But, you know, he was, he told me something interesting. He said that Omar, when Omar played, you know, shift wasn't involved. The shift wasn't as a big a factor as it is today. And he had to play the whole, the whole distance between third and, and second and second base. He had to cover that whole territory. He didn't get a break by shifting over behind second base, you know, and, and uh, you know, cutting down the distance and cutting off uh, foul ball, you know, ground balls. And and I think Omar really kind of dominated that those that, that 90 feet between second and, and third. He kind of reinvented the position almost to me, not reinvented, but he added some tweaks to it. You know, uh, the bare hand play he made, you know, that was, that almost became routine with him and, you know, going back on, on, uh, you know, fly balls between second, between into shallow left field or shallow center field. When the sun, instead of looking into the sun, going back pedaling, he, he turned his back on, on a lot of pop-ups, uh, to shallow left field to block the sun and caught it over his shoulder. I mean, I remember Gene Michael, the, uh, the GM for the Yankees was in, in the press box one day at, 
at Progressive Field. And he, he would, Gene Michael had been a big league shortstop. He goes, I've never seen a guy do that. You know, <laughs> he just kind of, he said, he's kind of reinventing the position. So, you know, I think there was that, that kind of flair about him. You, you, you know, I, even though those great Indians teams were loaded with, you know, Hall of Famers and All-Stars at every position, you, you know, Omar, you know, held his own with those guys. He was, he was, he was a big factor in tying that whole defense together on those great '90s teams, and he, you know, he he hit at the top of the the lineup and helped set the stage for Albert Bell and Carlos uh, uh, Baerga and, and Eddie Murray, you know, and and Tommy and Ramirez and all those guys. Yeah, people forget that in the uh, in those the halcyon days of the Indians in the mid '90s, uh, uh, over at turn of the century. Uh, his on-base percentage was 350 or higher over, well, pretty much all those years from 1996 through, uh, let's see, 2000. Uh, he was over 350 on-base percentage for all but one season. Uh, you know, it, it tailed off towards the end of his career, obviously, and, and he ended up with, at a 336. But he was not dead weight in the in the. Uh, lineup he, he just was so much different than everybody else in that lineup because he wasn't going to hit for power and and he wasn't necessarily going to hit for extra bases very often uh, but that and and here's the I and I wonder if if the writers are giving him credit for one thing that you could not possibly give Ozzy Smith credit for Omar played on grass fields he didn't play on artificial turf. Ozzy played the majority of his career on artificial turf and didn't worry about bad hops. Those one-handed, you know, those barehand plays you talk about, there's just no comparison in the difference when you're hitting, when every balance is going to be relatively true as compared, you know, hit the dirt in the infield and here comes Omar and he's still going to, you know, make the play with one hand. And, and often he'd be making it because it was a bad hop. Right. That, you know, if it wasn't a bad hop, he wouldn't have to do barehanded. You know, he'd be, he'd be able to do it in the, in the traditional way. Uh, that, you know, that's a great yeah. point, Jamie. That's a great point. Uh, 18 of his last 19 seasons. I mean, I, he played at Seattle to start his career. So he was at the Kingdom. But 18 of his last 19 seasons, uh, 18 seasons in a row, which with Cleveland, uh, San Francisco, Texas and the White Sox, he played on regular grass fields and uh and, and I, you know maybe that's part of it as well it also i i wonder how much of this is being influenced by who is ahead of him in the vote after last year two guys with enormous steroid problems with uh roger clemens and barry bonds and kurt Schilling, who i think i think we both agree is probably going to make it this year but you know, obviously, I had to fight his way through all sorts of uh, uh, challenges with having a very contentious uh, relationship with uh, with writers. Not that you would know anything about that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, Schilling Schilling got seven of the vote last year. I, I you know, um, you know, Jamie, I think he should have been in a long time ago, but uh, you know, he hurt himself basically. You know, after his playing days, he couldn't stay off social media. And uh, I think he, uh, you know, turned a lot of people off. 
by that, and uh, rightfully so. Clemens is at 61%. Bonds at 60.7%. You know, two of the greatest players in history, basically. But they, unfortunately, they're they're they have a strong association with uh, steroids. This is their ninth year on the ballot. If they don't, you know, they they've got one year left. I mean, if they don't make it this year, they've got one year left, and then it goes to the, uh, you know, the vet, the, uh, you know, the different uh, phases of the uh, veterans committee, and, you know, from from what everything you hear, uh, the Hall of Famers, the current Hall of Famers, do not want those guys in, you know, alleged, I mean, alleged steroid users in, you know, obviously there's there's guys in there already that have used steroids that did, but, you know. Clemens and Bonds are, you know, those are the uh, those are the poster those are the poster guys of of that era. So that's really going to be interesting to see how that that breaks down. But yeah, I think uh, you know Omar is at fifty two point six percent behind those those three guys, and there wasn't like a slam dunk a slam dunk uh, you know first year candidate that's been added to the ballot this year. Uh, so I think all that is going to help Omar. Uh, you know, if if he doesn't make it this year, to to increase his vote total and get get closer to uh, Cooperstown. And Cooperstown does like having a class every year. I mean, yes, they're going to have uh, last year's uh, you know class in because there wasn't a ceremony this year, but they like having somebody in every year. And that you know, assuming Schilling is one, uh, you know, there hasn't been just a one person induction in quite a while as i I recall yeah there's been at least two to four players elected i think for the last i want to say six to ten years you know that the class especially with the veterans committee they've they've been electing more and more players uh you know uh like uh you know you know jeter and and larry walker uh, will go in from last year's class because, you know, last year's ceremonies were uh, postponed because of the uh, pandemic. And Ted Simmons and, uh, um, oh, man, uh, who's the uh, Marvin Miller? Marvin Miller right. are going in from the modern day era. So you've got four guys from last year, and you would think Schilling gets in at 70, with, with him being at 70% this year, and at least somebody else, I, I would hope, Maybe Omar is makes it, you know, is is the other guy to get in there. Would you be shocked if either Bonds or Clemens got voted in? You know, I I don't vote for him, uh, Jamie. I've never voted for him. I, I try not to vote for guys uh, linked to the steroid era. Um, I'm not all seeing, you know, I, I just, but, you know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, sometimes it's a duck, you know. But uh, there's been a there's been big changeover in in the uh, in the BBWA you know voting uh, group you know a lot of younger voters are, are now vote you know you've got to have 10 years experience uh, 10 years in the, in the association executive 10 years covering baseball and a lot of uh, younger writers don't hold that kind of prejudice or don't think that was that wrong it was they don't think it was that big of a you know, a transgression, you know, they, they, they say, well, everybody was doing in, in that era. So why not, uh, you know, why, why are we keeping two of the best players in, in baseball history out? Um, I don't agree, but, uh, 
you know, we'll see. I, I do not think that either one is going to get in, though, Jamie. If you, you know, put back against the wall, I, I doubt they're going to get in. I don't think this is going to change that much. Well, on that note, uh, we'll we'll wrap up this section of the cast on Omar, who it, I think we were both in agreement. It, it, he's in the right path. He's, he's headed in the right direction. Uh, we will come back in a couple moments with um, a thought about uh, something else that might be going in a, well, we don't know if it's a good direction or a bad direction, but we'll be talking about the Indians front office uh, when we're back after this. We're back on the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast, just reminding you that uh, we do this every day. And uh, you could also get more information from Paul Hoynes by joining our subtext uh, program, uh, in which uh, for $3.99 a month, uh, Paul will be sending texts directly to your phone of uh, observations and insight that he gets from the uh, Major League Baseball every day. Uh, it's something that you wouldn't get anywhere else, and it usually is information that uh, you'll get before it appears uh, on our site uh, or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, so that's the Cleveland Indians and Major League updates with Hoynes and Joe Noga, and um, it's a free trial for 14 days. Now we're moving on to uh, something else that may have uh, a change in uh, uh, its situation is the Cleveland Indians front office, who once again are uh, the darlings of those teams that need new general managers or presidents of baseball operations or anything else they want to call it. And, uh, Paul, it seems like um, all this starts with the New York Mets. Yeah, you know, the Mets, obviously, Jamie, as you know, are under new ownership. Um, Steve Cohen, a, a hedge fund billionaire has purchased the uh, Mets for just over $2 billion. The guy is worth four, $14 billion, the richest owner in, uh, in, in baseball at the moment. And um, he's uh, looking for a new front office. Uh, he brought in Sandy Alderson to, uh, on a two-year deal to uh, kind of recruit and, and find that front office after you know, sweeping, the, sweeping the old one out the, out the door just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, right in their uh, crosshairs are, uh, are Chris Antonetti and, and uh, Mike Chernoff, the uh, president of uh, baseball operations and GM uh, of the Indians, uh, respectively. And, uh, you know, I t- over the weekend, I talked to some people, Jamie, and I got the impression that Antonetti was not leaving. You know, he he knows uh, I think they've they've the, the Mets have ex, have gotten you know expressed their interest whether they um, you know do it through the grapevine or they ask permission. Um, I do not think Antonetti is, is going to leave. I got the same impression from Chernoff, but I think the pull on Chernoff is probably a little stronger. He's from New Jersey. He grew up a Mets fan. Uh, his dad, uh, you know, is is a high as an executive in WFAN, fan, the fan, the radio station, the the sports talk radio station in New York City. 
This is a guy that, you know, the, the Mets, he turned down an interview with the Mets in 2018 to, as when they were looking for a GM. So it's, it's a really, really interesting situation. And, you know, you can't you, could, you couldn't blame either one of these guys, Antonetti or Chernoff, you know, for a, at least kicking the tires here because, you know, the Indians are, are you know, from all accounts are, are, are going to have one of their leanest off seasons ever coming off the pandemic. If, you know, what they what MLB and some MLB owners say is true, that you know, teams averaged perhaps a hundred million dollar uh uh, loss, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of losses because of the uh, virus and, you know, playing this short season and having no fans in the stands. Yeah, and, and I think it's also fair, uh, just as a little uh, bit of uh, history, the idea that the Indians uh, could be the uh, favored target of teams looking uh, to you know, upgrade their front offices is hardly a unusual situation. I mean, if you, you just go back in relatively recent history over the last 25 years or so, you know, John Hart, Dan O'Dowd, Mark Shapiro, and it's, you know, it, to lack of a better cliche, uh, it's always been next man up for the Indians. Uh, have they, is it your sense that they feel like they could, not that they want to have either or both of uh, these guys depart, um, but if either one did, are uh, how content or confident are the uh, Indians on what they already have as assistants ready to be moved out? Well, yeah, that's, that's a great point, Jamie. Uh, I think, you know, there's obviously a line of succession here. You know, I, I would think it would it would, you know, it would be easier to follow if, you know, a guy like Antonetti took the job. I think then Chernoff would just move up into the president of baseball operations. You know, they've got uh, assistant, they've got a three three assistant GMs who could, you know, perhaps move into the GM spot. Car- Carter Hawkins, <clears throat> Matt Foreman, Sky Andrichek, uh, guys like that, Eric Binder. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, you know, those guys, uh, those guys would be in line for that. <coughs> hey, let, let me get, can I, can we stop? Sure. Let me get a drink of water, okay? <laughs> All right. All right, we're back, and uh, Paul is hopefully had something to calm down a, a scratchy throat, or not. <laughs> but this is a, 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 an interesting topic, only because there's a sense that there has to be a transition plan in place for the Indians because they've gone through this so many times before, uh, and. Uh, whether it's Hawkins or Foreman, I mean, they they know that something like this is is possible, if not likely, right? Yeah, definitely, Jamie. I'm back. If, if that means, <laughs> did I screw it up? No, you're fine. Keep going. Okay. 
Oh, just keep going. Okay, yeah. You know, we saw this. Um, we saw this. Uh, tr- you know, this this transition going on um, when Shapiro left uh, to uh, take over the Toronto Ball Club and took Ross Atkins, his farm director, with him. You know, Antonetti moved up. Uh, to uh, well, Antonetti had already been in that uh, position. He'd been running the baseball side of things. Mark had kind of was overseeing business and baseball. And then you know, Chernoff moved up. You know, from the I think I think he was either assistant GM or farm director. So they have a line of succession and plans. Now I think if now if Chernoff leaves, you know, if 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 Anton, if Chernoff leaves, you know, I think the, the same thing. You know, you got Carter Hawkins. He's been in the organization a long time. Same with Foreman. So that could, I think that would work. You know, they, they, they've got, they might have to bring in a new guy. But you've got, <clears throat> you've also had Brad Grant sitting there. Who's done a great job, you know, did a great job with the uh, draft. So maybe he would be a candidate as well. Well, it's uh, you're, as you uh, suggest, having uh, you know checked around your sources, it doesn't seem like something that may necessarily happen uh, right now. But uh, I certainly do think that the the connections that Chernoff has with the East Coast uh, does seemed like it would be very attractive to him. Yeah, I know. Uh, uh, I think uh, John Mar- John Morosi reported today that they've asked permission, the Mets have asked permission to talk to Chernoff. You know, I don't know uh, if that permission has been granted, but it would be, you know, usually you let a guy go if it would be a, a uh, promotion. And if he went to from GM to uh, president of the baseball operations for the Mets, that, you know, that would obviously be a promotion. But the last time I checked, I got I got the you know, I I got the feeling that the front office was going to at least Antonetti and Chernoff were going to stay in place. Well, there you have it from uh, Paul. And that will wrap up today's uh, edition of the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. Uh, we thank you for listening as uh, you do every day. And we will be back uh, either with uh, myself or Joe with, along with Paul uh, tomorrow. And we'll talk to you then. Have a good day, everybody.